Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 436, Chopping It Up with Chef Tobias Gorzon. Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, pretty well. I guess you know. I feel like every time we come on here, I have to provide some kind of weather update now for a, you know some weird weather podcast that serves no purpose for anyone listening. But things have cooled down here slightly, so everything is a little bit more manageable. Oh, good to know. Uh, I guess for everyone joining in for the interview, about 30 minutes in, we'll have our interview with Tobias Dorzan, a World-class chef that's also pretty good at football. I think that's the way he would prefer us to to intro him. <laughs> yeah, no, a really fascinating conversations, probably with one of our more eclectic guests in, in recent time and, and really interesting to speak to someone who's managed to reach an elite level in two very, very different career paths. So, you know, there was a number of interesting topics came up. And, you know, it's a really fascinating interview. It was great having him on. So worth sticking around for. We obviously hope that you don't skip ahead by 30 minutes and just go to the interview. But, you know, listen to the little intro part and there's the interview waiting for you. Worth also, I guess, saying if you are a first time listener, make sure you like or subscribe or follow us on whichever podcast platform you're using maybe give us a, a review or a rating if you'd like to while you're there yeah, give us a really nice also review. F- super appreciate it. well give us an honest one well an honest an honestly nice one <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and also you know subscribe you can follow us on search for the big chill podcast on instagram or twitter or uh, on youtube and obviously i think particularly interesting when we do have you know we have a number of very good interviews coming up as well after this it's a nice way to see actual visual clips from the interviews that we have and, and kind of get a chance to see, you know, it's always nice, I think, to put some faces to some, some voices. And I personally digest a lot of my podcast related content in like little clips I see either on YouTube or, or Instagram. So it's not just podcasts. You digest all of your, all of your video content is in two to three minutes clips. (laughs) It's true. I'm very clip heavy in terms of how I consume content, but I do like, there are podcasts I do not listen to, but I would say that three or four times a week, I will watch like six minutes of their content, either on Instagram or YouTube. The only thing that you consume more than your YouTube clips are those reels about those two people in relationships (laughs) (laughs) with those completely natural, not set up interactions. (laughs) Yeah. For listeners who are unaware, I am doing my best. I'm close to launching a campaign on various social media platforms to stop these couples who put out, isn't life wonderful and perfect content. It is, I am dedicating my life to stopping this content you know what so far i I wish you could just dedicate it like at an individual solo basis because for every time you send me a new clip through instagram they now pop up on my instagram and my facebook on a routine basis and i'm so tired of seeing these you know like honey i think we need to break up what (laughs) i'm so sick of these clips the content is awful. I think here's the 
it's a little bit of a catch-22, actually, with the campaign to stop them, is that by creating the campaign, I'm also promoting the content. So I'm becoming, I'm becoming the thing I hate in, in actually trying to stop the content itself. You know, I am very much part of the problem, but no, I think it's, as I said, we, I've had a, people can go back and listen to the previous podcast if they have not, but I actually think it is pretty damaging content as a whole in terms of the, in the image it gives people of what relationships should be like. It is also just unfunny and uncreative and unoriginal. So I don't like it from a content standpoint in any way. But hey, leave us a positive review. <laughs> now positively that nice review. <laughs> now that I've criticized honestly, someone else's content. positively nice review. I actually did something I haven't done in a very long time this weekend. I went to the movies. Do you want to guess what movie I saw? I actually can't. I have no idea what's currently in theaters. So like I can't. If you say it, I'll probably recognize it. But I genuinely have no like trying to name five movies in theaters right now. I could not do it. It's called Top Gun Maverick. Do you ever hear of it, Eddie? (laughs) Oh, it's a little little indie film. (laughs) Yeah. A little low budget film that just came out a few months ago. I've heard I've heard good things about the lead actor. I think he could be going places. Him and his lifts. (laughs) short guys from one short king to another short king summer (laughs) you two are supposed to stick together i I really resonate with tom cruise character in all of his movies (laughs) okay all right that's interesting trying to think back through his but yeah how was it then so i'll preface this by saying i've seen the original top gun probably i don't know four or five times maybe a little more don't love it. Like I'm not a huge Top Gun fan. I wasn't crazy excited when the sequel came out, but I have to say I really, really enjoyed it. I, I don't. It's it's a very simple action movie. It's not one that can be taken super seriously. You have to take it as going to be, you know, a kind of not super realistic action movie, but yet it's really good. It's almost. I, I I'm not the first one to have said this, but it feels kind of like a sports movie in a sense where there's like everyone is separate and the team has to come together and certain players on the team have to overcome, you know, previous obstacles they have with each other and then complete this mission. And it's kind of got like a sports feel to it without being a sports movie, which I mean, obviously I resonate really well with because, you know, we've we've discussed many times all the different sports movies on here, but it, it was it was fun. It was wasn't super long. You know, it wasn't a crazy long movie, which is always nice nowadays. The action scenes are unreal. I, I listened to a podcast about how they filmed it. And, you know, they had these brand new specially designed cameras from Sony that they were able to put in 12 cameras into the cockpit. So to get all these different angles and they actually had the actors up there in the pretty much like the back seat of the jet. And they kind of had to act out like they were flying it, which is kind of funny when you're not flying, but to pretend like you are. But it was like the visual effects and the sound effects were awesome. I mean, if you can, you have to see it in a theater. The sound was so loud that your, my seat was shaking during the jet scenes. It was cool. I probably will not see it in a theater. You should go see it in a theater, but I probably, it's really fun. It is a fun movie. Uh, Yeah. It's had, you know, universally pretty good reviews and, uh, yeah, I, I watched the behind the scenes, like the making of on YouTube. So kind of which spoke about what you just touched on in terms of how they actually went about filming the scenes. And it's super impressive. I would encourage everyone 
even if you don't really have an interest in Top Gun, it is cool. And to see, for example, the actors themselves kind of had to be the directors for the individual scenes that they were in because they decided when they started recording. So it's like a very interesting, and also they had to sort of train the pilots in terms of them understanding more about what they needed to get out of a scene so that the pilot themselves could be kind of taken into account lighting and sort of different elements that would play into how the scene would look. So yeah, it's very fascinating. Uh, But you know, I always like to be a downer when it comes to certain topics. I have issues with Tom Cruise, right? Like the (laughs) the Scientology ties, he's maybe not a great guy. You know, like he seems very friendly and very nice. But when you really think about the way that Scientology can be so destructive in people's lives and can just harass and persecute people trying to leave the church and you have Tom Cruise as kind of the face of it, his PR team is doing a very, very good job of keeping all of that extremely separate. I, I mean, th- that's you're right. And that's kind of almost where I was just about to counter where I was going to say, is he really the face of it? Because they kind of really separate him away from it. Um, but yeah, it, what was also kind of funny is the opening of the movie is not actually the movie. It's Tom Cruise sitting in a movie theater seat thanking you for coming back to the movies to watch his movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of, it was really corny, but it was just like, it's just so funny because part of it is justified, but part of it is, is his ego where he, I honestly think he feels he is saving movies post COVID. I mean, with the whole mission impossible thing where he had that enormous speech to everyone that was working on set about how like, we need to make this movie and you can't get COVID and this and how we went on that like rampage uh, with everyone that was working there. And and now with this whole thing of like putting a a minute of his face on the screen before the movie comes out, thanking them uh, that it's, it's kind of funny, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess he can take some credit, right. In terms of churning out true blockbusters that were made both during the pandemic itself and, and, you know, post pandemic. So I can see. I mean, he he clearly loves filmmaking and movie making and being a star, right? Like he cares passionately about that in a way that maybe no one else around really does anymore. So that seems at least genuine to me. But yeah, it's very hard. It's always that challenge, right, of separating art, the, the sort of the performer, the artist from the art. And I do struggle. Tom Cruise is not the worst example of someone in terms of their personal, how their personal lives can impact their the art that they put out, but I do struggle slightly with this Tom Cruise Renaissance that we're currently living in, and the fact that I just think because Scientology had its moment in the sun in like the early two thousands, everyone was talking about Scientology relentlessly. I think people have almost become bored of talking about Scientology, and so they are still very much actively going on in the background. It's just we don't care anymore. It's it's sort of very indicative of just our society as a whole just like yeah we we dedicated enough time to talking about scientology let's just move on to new topics now but it's still there it's still you know potentially destroying people's lives i guess we won't get sponsored by wow didn't think you didn't think scientology rant by eddie was gonna be the 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 lead topic i pull no but no knowing the downer you are can't expect anything less do you want it do you want to specify that it's mostly an american-based religion (laughs) (laughs) do you want to blame america no i'm not blaming america for this but no it is um yeah it's a little bit of a downer but yeah we can move on to let's let's move on to 
I guess in some ways, what is another downer, which is the fact that Serena Williams today, as of the day of recording, uh, uh, announced that she will be retiring, that the U.S. Open tournament will be her last. And so, you know, it's the end of an era, obviously within women's tennis and tennis as a whole. We've spoken about on previous podcasts how, you know, I am a big believer in the fact that sports are con- constantly getting better. But we, we, even with that in mind, we have lived through in the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, an era in which we have experienced some of the very best athletes in a number of the, you know, major sports. If you think of Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tom Brady, you know, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, you know, the list kind of goes on, but we have really simultaneously had some of the very best athletes in their sports of all time competing. So it will be sad to see her go, and it's a, they are big shoes to fill in women's tennis. The one thing that really bothered me about her, the article in which she announced, just to be another downer, and announced this decision to step away from tennis and to focus on her family, is the fact that she referenced the fact that she is one short of Margaret Court's record for the most Grand Slams victories. And she's been in that situation for five years and lost finals and just never managed to quite get over the hump and match the record and then potentially break the record. What bothered me is she referenced in her own article and the article that was kind of came out to announce this, the fact that some people would not consider her the goat because of this fact. I do not like an athlete themselves speaking about whether or not they're the goat or advocating that they should be considered to be the goat. Like, obviously, you might get asked questions about it. And I think, you know, you, you see someone like Djokovic get asked that a lot. He will always talk about the fact how that's, you know, his that le- aspect of his legacy is for other people to decide. It's not sort of what he is a part of. I don't like an athlete themselves or anyone in any industry for that matter, really championing themselves as being the greatest of all time at doing what they do. That just seems an ego step too far for me, even if deep down inside you believe it. To actually be sitting, speaking to someone and saying, I know some people don't consider me the greatest of all time, but let's face it, I am. Yeah, it is a very strange thing. And honestly, I think it's even more strange that that's kind of the way it's brought up. I'm okay with people saying I'm the best ever, right? Like I, 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 that part I don't care about if like LeBron James were, were to say, you know, like I'm retiring. I think I'm the best player that ever played this and that. But it's more strange if he were to say something along the lines of like, I think I'm the goat, but, you know, there is some debate about it and, you know, like this and that and like what the debates are. Because at that point, you're like involved in the debate part. There's a difference between just being confident and saying you're the best ever. That's confidence. But once you're getting into like the nitty gritty, like she is there, like you're saying, you know, she doesn't have as many grand slams. So maybe she's not considered the greatest of all time. That means that you're really, really debating about it and that to me i think is is getting a little out of out of context i know i think that's a good point once you're becoming part of the conversation itself that seems strange i I, and you're bringing up the talking points yeah i think that's a fair point but again i don't have obviously i think there's a number of i mean look there's athletes who would be miles away from being the greatest of all time in their respective sports who do believe that they are and you know that's maybe part of the mindset that's often required in terms of becoming an elite athlete but it just for someone to yeah to be part of that discussion particularly when yeah she doesn't i mean she doesn't need it 
You know what I mean? Like it's not yeah. as if everyone's putting her in the debate anyway. She doesn't need to throw herself in there. But a huge loss to women's tennis, obviously. You know, she has been the face of yeah. women's tennis for what is approaching 30 years, you know, which is yeah, unbelievable when you think about it. But it's, it, it, there will be massive shoes to fill. And I don't think there's currently anyone in the women's game capable of doing that. We've obviously spoken about Swiatek in the past. But, and as good as she is, I don't think, you know, part of being the face of a sport is a little bit personality based in addition to the skill level. And Serena Williams is a rare example of someone who had both the necessary skill and talent, but also the charisma and the personality necessary to really be the face of a sport. And she's driven women's tennis forward and tennis as a whole forward by, you know, leaps and bounds in over the last two decades. I don't know if there's anyone immediately available to take up the mantle, but, you know, hopefully in the next few years, someone emerges who's able to continue to drive tennis and women's tennis further forward. Yeah. And, you know, in the, like you said, what, 20 years of being in the sport and going through some pretty serious injuries and coming back, uh, you know, and, and winning more titles. And then I think what I really respect is she then, you know, went on maternity leave and came back and kind of, I think, did that. She could have retired then, right? And that was only two, three years ago at this point now. But I really respect the fact that she came back to show everyone that it can be done. And even at her age, you can come back from maternity leave and still win titles, which she did. And it's that's an enormous amount of respect for that to then come back, win titles, and now be able to kind of leave now that she's ready and willing and, and kind of prove, prove to the world that that's possible. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a, it is setting an example within sports or any industry in terms of how, I mean, it's an unfortunate thing to say in the expectations of men versus women, but obviously how women have to balance their professional lives with their personal lives and family in a way that oftentimes men do not. And it's a consideration that they have to have, particularly as professional athletes, where that can interfere with your prime years in a way that obviously a man would not be impacted by being a father. Uh, but yeah, it's a, you know, inspirational in that respect. And, and yeah, it will be interesting to see what her post-tennis career holds. Because I mean, if there's one thing we can be certain of is that this will not be the last we hear of Serena Williams. So we will continue to hear of her. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see in exactly which ways she continues to be sort of present in the, maybe the sport of tennis, but also far beyond that. Now, another topic that we, before we get onto the Premier League, and then eventually onto the, the interview that we have coming up as well, we barely a week goes by where we cannot talk about live golf. And I don't want to dedicate. Oh, God. Come on. <laughs> Just give me one week off with the live golf tour, Eddie. <laughs> I don't want to dedicate too much time to the live golf tour. However, one of their big signings in sort of recent days and weeks has been David Faraday, who they took from NBC who you know, has been a popular member of the NBC golf coverage team for quite a long time. I don't know if you saw, but he came out and sort of spoke pretty openly about why he decided to join the Live Golf Tour. Now, he did this in an interview. Uh, he started off with, I think, a level of honesty that is quite refreshing, where he said, money, 
People don't talk about it. I hear, well, it's to grow the game. Bull. They paid me a lot of money. That was his answer to why he's joined. I respect, I think the directness and the openness and the honesty is refreshing. However, he followed this up by saying that another one of the motivators is that it's an opportunity to be himself again. He said it's become more and more difficult, especially in sports broadcasting, to have any kind of character. Charles Barkley can say pretty much anything he wants because it's, oh, that's just Charles and it's just Charles. But I have more and more, I have become more, but I have become more and more guarded over the last few years. There are people waiting around every corner, hoping to be offended by something. Fuck those people. Our lives are being shaped by small groups of mean-spirited people who have no sense of humor. We're in danger of losing our national sense of humor because of this. What exactly is David Faraday wanting to say on an NBC golf bar broadcast that he is now unable to do so because of cancel culture? Like, I just don't get it. I, I, I hate to break it to him. But even if he were to say it, now that he's allowed to, I guess, say whatever he thinks he can say, people are still going to go after yeah. him. It's not as if like he's going to say something. People are like, oh, I was, I, if he were on NBC, I would have said something. But now that he's on the Live Golf Tour, I'm going to let this one go. He can still get canceled just as easily. And in fact, probably more easily because now he's going to think he has this opportunity to say things that he shouldn't. Which again, to your main point, what the hell is he going to like? Does he want to rip on the golfer's dress code or or their attire or how they look or like what what are they was he trying to rip on no and actually i think you raise a good point there it's kind of a backhanded compliment towards live golf because if you really think about it what he's almost saying is it was hard to do on nbc because a lot of people cared but once i'm now now i'm on live golf tour nobody cares what happens here so i can say whatever i want probably no one's watching like there is an element there of now you're speaking to a, a smaller audience but yeah, I, d- I don't know what it is he possibly, especially as the guy who's normally like on course giving those, you know, what is it he wants to say? And not a great look for golf, which is, you know, historically not done a great job when it comes to diversity and inclusion. What is it that David Faraday wants to say that over the last 20 years has become difficult for him to say? Does he think he's like golf's version of Jeff Ross, like the Roastmaster General? He's just gonna get up there every time someone says up to the T, he's gonna give him like a five minute roast. Like, what's he doing? No, pretty, yeah, pretty unbelievable. But that that's the only live golf update for today and and maybe for a while. But I thought it was worth mentioning. And then I guess so with that, I think we should probably move on to the Premier League, right? Opening opening weekend. Yeah, an opening weekend that for the most part was, I think there's only really two big talking points from the opening weekend, which are Liverpool dropping points in the lunchtime kickoff on Saturday with a two-all draw against Fulham and Manchester United losing on the opening weekend in a what was a pretty pathetic performance against Brighton. I think those are fundamentally the big two takeaways from the weekend obviously Holland had a nice Premier League debut for Manchester City winning and then scoring. nice is I think nice is a slightly an understatement I I think watching that match I can just see the opportunity he's gonna have on a week-to-week basis I mean that the penalty that he drew was pretty the he covered 15 meters of ground in three strides. Like it was pretty 
It was crazy. No, he's a big imposing guy. Dude, and how quick he is. Yeah, no. He is so he is very, very quick. But just a small side note here. I'm I don't know in this day and age, after Usain Bolt, why we still have to go on about I can't believe he's this quick for being this tall. I still hear people say this. The 100 and 200 meter world record holder is one of the tallest sprinters in the history of sprinting. And we're still holding on to this fact that just because he's tall doesn't mean he can be quick. It's so annoying. Yeah, there's also (laughs) countless examples from pretty much every sport of incredibly tall people being incredibly fast. I mean, you think in the NFL. God, it's so frustrating. You think in the NFL, there's been, you know, wide receivers who have been very tall, very fast. Premier League has had tall, fast players before. You see it in rugby as well. I mean, it's in every sport. So yeah, it's just, it feels like it's one of those things people, like it's too, like they can't not say it, even if they don't think it's interesting. But it's like, well, we have to address the fact, right? This is the elephant in the room. We have to tell everyone, isn't it amazing that he's so big yet so tall? Like, uh, but yeah, it is. I don't know why I agree with you. I don't know why it's still surprising people. But no, Holland will score goals. The question is, yeah. How much will he play if he continues to have injury problems? But he will score goals whenever he is. Right. An, an impressive debut. Yeah, sure. A brace and and almost a hat trick. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to. Yeah, I don't think we go overboard in the praise for the performance because he he plays for Manchester City. They create goals and score. You know, create chances and score goals. That's what he's going to do. But no, City yeah. looked good. They looked like I think we would have expected them to. Liverpool looked sluggish and not weren't fully at the races, which is surprising given the fact that they were pretty impressive the week before in the Community Shield against Manchester City. So to follow that up with a pretty tepid performance against Fulham, I was surprised by it. And, you know, I think it's you don't want to have the overreaction to a single match of, oh, do they miss Sadio Mane? Or, you know, can they, you know, what implications does this have for the season as a whole? Because really from a you know a, sing, a sample size of one match you cannot draw too many conclusions having said that not a great sign for them in you know recent history has shown us that manchester city will drop very few points over the course of the season so to have already dropped two points to a team that is likely to be in the relegate you know in or around the drop zone those could be a very meaningful two points come come May. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we we talked about this in our preview that points are going to be a premium. I, I think both these teams. Well, I I guess I'll now that City's winning is leading. Uh, you know, it's City's not going to drop many points, so points are definitely going to be a premium. And these are two that they should not have dropped. Look, two months from now they're going to look back and say, "Shit, if we had those extra two right now." we'd be a lot closer than we are. Yes, at least two points closer. But yeah, they yeah. <laughs> But no, it's yeah, I think I think it is definitely it will be one of the results that they look at back on come the end of the season and to have done that in the opening match is not great. But having said that, City have also in recent seasons dropped points on the opening day or in the f- first few matches and then come back to win the league. It is obviously entirely possible dropping two points is not the end of their season, but it is giving City a two-point advantage that you probably did not want to give them. And then Manchester United, and in the start of the Eric Ten Hag uh, experience, just we saw all the worst parts, <laughs> all the worst parts of Manchester United from recent seasons. The sort of combination of disinterest and 
lack of cohesion, seemingly not always being certain of what exactly it is they were supposed to be doing, maybe a lack of quality in key areas. Their midfield continues to not have the standard of players that you'd probably associate with Manchester United. I mean, when you really look at their central midfield options, it's just not super impressive. But I think any optimism any Manchester United fans might have had coming into this season, thinking new manager, well, we can maybe we're going to see a, a new and improved version of the team that we had last season. We've managed to cut the dead wood. Everything will be better. I think that bubble will have been burst. And I doubt there is much optimism at Old Trafford at the moment. Yeah. Uh, experience is is a very nice way to put what that performance was. And I'm sure how the fans thought that performance was. Yeah. it's, it's- and, and probably a, a big wake-up call for him too. You know what I mean? Like he... I'm sure he was well aware of the size of the task ahead of him. You know, like he's will have seen Manchester United in recent seasons and will have been working with them on a daily basis. But that might have just been really sort of putting that front and center as to, uh-oh, we are a million miles away from being one of the best two or three teams in this league. Yeah, and, and you know, after seeing that result, it, I that's kind of almost what I was thinking is, do you think there is has already been conversations before this season started as to him knowing that this is going to be not an overnight fix? And do, do you know what I mean? Like, should he be worried two weeks from now when they're sitting 12th in the table? Or has that conversation already taken place where he's told the owners that, look, this is not going to be an easy fix. It's give me time. I think it's inconceivable to think that he and the Glazers and, and sort of senior executives and management management within Manchester United did not agree that this was a two to three year project to even be title challengers. And, you know, if, having said that though, how low can you go before, before that gets thrown out the window? I think, I mean, obviously not getting relegated, but I cannot imagine him losing his job this season for a number of reasons. One being the fact that there's a commitment, obviously, to this being a project. Also, it would just... Manchester United have obviously had their stature within the English and European game damaged over the last decade. They would be close to being a laughing stock if this was another managerial change. I mean, at that point, it would just be a revolving door, and it would then become even harder to find a suitable candidate not only because I don't think there's a lot of viable candidates out there on the market anyway, but also how do you then convince someone to come and take the job when it is come here for three or four months, maybe we will decide, uh uh-oh, you're not good enough. So I think there is no way. I think if, you know, for the Glazers or for, you know, the, the executives and Manchester United, they must have said to themselves almost, we have to give him three years. Like unless he walks away, this is... This would have to be catastrophic in order for us. I mean, I honestly think it would have to be risk of relegation for them to be getting rid of him. Even if they're finishing eighth or ninth this season, I don't think it should even be a debate. Now, of course, in the media, it will be discussed because that's what the media does. But internally, they should have all said, this is a long-term project and we are not going to think about short-term results. Well, I I mean, that was... I would say a disappointing loss to Brighton and they're going to follow it up with Brentford. So a good opportunity to at least temporarily right the ship. 
Yeah. Coming up, you'd hope. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> or or the ship could just be sinking quicker. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost torn. If you were them, I, I think you'd almost rather be playing one of the big teams and th- and kind of thinking of it as um like a shot to nothing. Like we can go into this playing with house money a little bit because we, you know, if they were playing City, yeah. like yes, they might get embarrassed, but realistically, they would think. All right, we're trying to figure things out. They're going to get embarrassed anyway. Yeah, so <laughs> let's not worry about it. Whereas if they've started the season with loss, you know, if they don't have a win this weekend, things start to look, you can almost already start to write off the top four, which again, a little bit of an overreaction, but you do get to that point with Spurs also looking quite good at the weekend. You just start to think uh, things could be tough in terms of squeezing into those Champions League spots. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, just to not really preview much of of week two but that is the the prime game uh for coming up on sunday is going to be chelsea spurs so that's a good matchup pretty early on and will be a good indicator for both of those teams it will be i will be stunned if spurs don't win having watched both stunned stunned a big word stunned i don't know where chelsea are going to score goals from i genuinely don't understand where the goals are going to come from and combine that with the fact that Spurs look good. I think this could be, certainly I think from Spurs' perspective, they are playing Chelsea at absolutely the right time, and I would be very surprised if they do not win. Well, there you go. Nothing like ending on a bold prediction. It's not the boldest, but no, it's certainly not a gimme. So hopefully, I mean, listeners will be tuning in before the match is taking place, but we can see if by the time we record next whether or not that prediction will proved to be correct and just to throw some salt in the wounds eddie by how many goals will liverpool beat crystal palace this week <laughs> five or six probably <laughs> seven nil is gonna be the yeah. score of that match <laughs> those who those those who suffered what we suffered know exactly what we're talking about <laughs> yeah for any accumulator busters out there which you know that yeah it's uh, i'm sure liverpool will be back to their brilliant best on Monday night. All right. Well, with that, I think we should send it off to the interview. Hello, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now joined by former football player and now professional chef, Tobias Dorzon. Uh, thanks for being on the podcast, Tobias. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I think most people probably know you from you know all the work you've done as a chef, whether it's uh, you know, all these amazing pictures you put up on social media of all your food, which is pretty spectacular, I have to say, um, or, you know, being on a lot of the Food Network shows, you know, like Guys Grocery Games or uh, Tournament Champions, which you were a Final Four contestant in last year. Uh, but before yes, all that, you actually had a whole different professional career as a football player in both the NFL and, yeah. and CFL, which yeah. is, I mean, pretty amazing. Like, no big deal, right? I mean, everyone has two amazing, you know, careers in one. Um, I can say that, but luckily (laughs) blessed to be able to live my life twice. Yeah. And and I think that would be great if you could talk about that journey first, um, you know, what it was like when you started playing football, when you kind of realized that you are a lot better than everyone else, your progression through high school to college to pros, you know, I'd love to hear that story. Uh, Pretty much. Like, you know, growing up, um, my parents are from West Africa, from Liberia. Um, so growing up, um, I lived in the, I lived in a, a neighborhood called Tacoma Park, Maryland, where um, I would say that football wasn't really 
what my parents was going to let me do. Like, you know, um, foreign parents really like their kids to play soccer. So I played soccer growing up until I was about 14. And I moved to a, I moved to my uh, my neighborhood that I actually grew up in from the time I was um, 12 to, to now, which is the neighborhood that my parents still live in now. Um, and we, it was an urban neighborhood. So like going to recess and asking where the soccer balls were or something that, you know, not too many people will find upon. They, you know, they, they, they played football, played basketball. A couple of people played baseball. For the most part, everybody played football and basketball. So football was one of those things that I started playing at recess with, you know, a lot of my uh, kids that lived around my neighborhood. And everybody asked me, like, you're so fast. Like, you know, soccer gives you footwork. So I had footwork. So they just wonder why I didn't play football. And, Finally, beg my I beg, beg my parents for a whole summer, and they they wouldn't let me play. And I played like my last season of soccer, living in my my um old neighborhood, and end up just traveling back and forth. It was a um a AAU team, and I just didn't want to do it no more. I finally, like one of my cousins that was a year older than me, but a lot smaller than me, played football for one of the neighborhood teams, and my aunt kind of convinced my parents to finally let me play. It was probably like from like the first day that I like touched the football and organized football. I told my parents, I was like, I don't never think I'll play soccer again. Like never. And it worked out where, you know, boys club, I, I ended up being one of the like best players on the team and high school, same way. And college, I ended up going to college. I went to Jackson state and um, coming out of Jackson state, um, I went free agent to the Titans and, it didn't really work out. They ended up signing a couple people that, uh, a, a couple people. And I ended up going to Baltimore for a second. And I, then I ended up in Tampa for a year. So I was in Tampa and then NFL career was a headache. So, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a hard job to stay in. And my agent had an opportunity for me to go over to Canada and actually play. Um, so I went over to Winnipeg and I played out there for two years and, I got released that my my second season then I got released and came back home. I was kind of like, man, this is not the move, man. Like I'm not the best. I was just so used to being the best at everything. So kind of like just being there wasn't enough for me. And I just felt like it was so many other things that I could do. And me growing up in a household where my dad's a chef, my dad's cooked my whole life and had his own restaurant, worked at the Pentagon as the executive chef, um, um, had a own catering company. So it was just like, I seen every step of, you know, culinary through my dad. And it was something that I always, you know, loved doing. So I ended up coming home that last year and I told my agent, I wasn't going back. Uh, I think Art Institute had like an opening for open house where they was doing like late registrations and, I had came home like right in time, right before it. Spent like the last of my money on on culinary school just to you know just to go and I really never looked back far as anything else after that far as the culinary world and uh, it's been a it's been a, a amazing journey you know of course all journeys have ups and downs but for the most part it ended up me it ended me up here and I mean I've my career is a hundred times bigger than my football career ever was, you know, being a chef. I was, I had the opportunity to go overseas and study culinary in Italy for six months to receive my fine dining degree. And um, 
Yeah, pretty much cooked for pretty much. I started my career really uh, well where it blew up was, you know, cooking for athletes. Santana Moss was my first official client. And, you know, we have these conversations all the time about, you know, how when I started cooking for him, I had never cooked for like an athlete before. And he wanted my prices and I really just threw a price off the top of my off the top of my head, not knowing. So when he looks back at interviews now that I had a couple of interviews I had a couple of years ago, and he he sees that you really didn't know what to, I was like I really didn't know what to charge, but you know I just went with my gut, charged something. He was willing to pay it, and he really set me up for success. With like sometimes you know you'll get a client and they won't share you and. He was more about making sure that I was good. And, you know, he was the OG on the Redskins team at the time. This was his last year. So he ended up putting me in contact with Deshaun Jackson, Trent Williams. I'm still currently, you know, if Trent has anything major, I'm still Trent chef. Like 2019 season when he held out, uh, we lived in L.A., you know, just keeping him in shape while he was training and working out. Cooked for endless entertainers and, um, of course, right now, you know, me and James have a restaurant together in Houston that I'm in. I'm, cu- I'm currently in my home in Houston now. So, you know, it's been an amazing journey. You know, I'm getting ready to open up Honcho House in Maryland in the next couple weeks. And, you know, I'm just bouncing around, having a good time, man. There's, I think there's so much to unpack <laughs> from the journey that you just described. You it, just described like an amazing life in seven, in like seven minutes that most people would think is like the greatest life in the planet. <laughs> in, including the fact that you just casually threw in James Harden's name as just James. So we, you know, oh, yeah, we even have that's, that. just, but, that's just the bro, man. Like, no, I know for you, for you, it's, I guess, you know, before we go into the, the, you know, the cooking side of things, that transition, like, you speak of it there as if you just knew you were frustrated with no longer being the best and you got to a point where you knew you needed to step away from football and pursue it, something else. How difficult was that? Because I think a lot of people, you know, obviously maybe not in elite sports or elite within whatever job they do, but reach a moment in time where they have to make a career switch and it's a difficult decision no matter what you do. Kind of what was that process like? Did it just literally you just had a moment where you went, that's it, I can't do it anymore? Or was it really a like a slower process? I think I've always been that way. You know, I grew up in a household where my dad didn't have, I mean, my dad wasn't the richest man ever, but he really enforced in himself where he wasn't really going to do something if he wasn't the best doing it. So it was kind of like the same way for me. Like just throughout sports, I was always like the best. I was always the fastest, you know, so, and I never played anything or tried to play anything that I knew I wasn't good at. I never played basketball. I knew I wasn't good at it. Never tried it. Never was one of those guys that was just like, let me go out and play for fun. Like if I wasn't good at something, you know, I just never really did it. And I loved football, but you know, like a lot of people um, that actually, you know, play in the league that aren't first round draft picks and stuff like that. You, 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 you learn that football is literally a job. (laughs) <laughs> and it's not a fun job. I mean, it, of course, like if you're getting paid a lot of money, you know, that people expect a lot out of you. And if you're not um, doing it for like the right reasons or or not even right reasons, but not putting your 100% talent doesn't take it there no more. Like, you, know, you got a lot of guys that study the playbook every day and, and know every defense and know every, you know, every angle of everything that's going on on the field. And 
those are the guys that last longer on top of talent as well. But talent, when you get to the NFL, those that elite level, everybody's great. You know, so it's what you're going to do. And I know me, I wasn't putting that much into it because, you know, I was a practice squad player for a while, active for just a second. And when I got to Canada, I was the guy for a minute. And then Canada is like, um, like you know, the NFL is like a melting pot for Canada. So it's eight teams in Canada and 32 teams in the NFL. People constantly get released from the NFL. You're battling against Canadians to really stay on the roster. Not really battling against another position, but you're battling against the, uh, another uh, another guy from the states because it has to be a certain amount of Canadians and a certain amount of Americans. So um, it really turned to a real job out there. And I was away from my at this time. I only had um, my oldest daughter, and I was away from her often and getting homesick from that. Got hurt out there, and like my injury really was a stressful injury. So when I got released that that second time, you know, when I came home, I, I really thought about it. I cooked throughout this whole time. So like. When I went to Jackson State, I would have like fish fries at the house and always cook. When I was in Canada, I would always invite. We lived in the same building as um, um, the Winnipeg Blue, um, not the Blue Bombers, the hockey team. They it was their first year back. The Jets. Oh, the, the, Jets. the Jets. We lived in the same condo, so I would always have like little uh, gatherings and I'll cook. And so when I went home that last time after I got released, you know. I started looking into the culinary um, school program and, you know, seeing how much it would cost. And it was something where I felt like I could, I could, I could be the next big thing in culinary just off of my own mental. Yeah. You know, football helped me transition. A lot of sports players help, like they, they transition into their second, you know, career and the ones that succeed because they take a lot of the, sports mentality to, to it. Like, you know, I took the same mentality that, that I had in football to culinary, which was a little different. Like the approach was, you know, just being the, just being the best at what it was that I did and, you know, end up going out, um, <clears throat> end up going to culinary school. But I talked to guys every day that, I mean, guys that went first round with, that, that in the same draft class 2010 that I went, who like has like issues. I, I have athletes every single day hit me up like how was it my transition like you know how was and it's really like I think it got to a point where a lot of people stay in it because they don't know nothing else you know a lot of people stay in it like when you're so used to being that guy just I mean you don't really have to be a superstar in the NFL to be big to the norm you know and when you're so used to being big to the norm and you really have to be a civilian, like an everyday life civilian. Like, but when you went to Alabama and you was a superstar in Alabama, and then you went to the NFL, you played four years in the NFL, but you was like bouncing around five teams, and then you finally, you know, it's over with. And you know, just middle school, high school, college, NFL, and then it just dies, and you haven't really done anything else in between, and really didn't focus on anything else. Um, it's not saying it's a bad thing. Cause a lot of people like it was one point in my life where I felt like football was my end all be all. But I also lived in an African household where my dad made sure I went to work every day at his restaurant. So it wasn't no getting around it, you know. But some kids, you know, they're they're fortunate enough to being raised where like 
the, the day and age we live in now, you have so many trainers and so many opportunities for kids to, you know, better themselves in the actual sport that they play. They do it all year long and there's nothing else that they do. So you go from middle school starting to train with trainers and high school and college. You're only focusing on one thing. There's nothing else outside of what you've been focusing on since you were 10. And, you know, like for that to come to an abrupt end at the age of 26 where you really haven't had a job in your life, um, you really haven't had, you know, much major responsibilities to now you have responsibilities and you haven't done anything else. And it's just like, I don't want to do anything else. And football is all I know. Like, how could I leave this? And it really sends a lot of athletes into depression. Like it really, like I've talked to a lot of guys that, you know, there's like, I'm just trying to figure it out, man. I don't know what's next. I don't know what to do next. You don't really know what you like outside of football. Cause You've done football your whole life. But, you know, I was just fortunate enough to, you know, my dad pushed me in them restaurants early when I was a kid. And I realized that I really did like to cook. And I really did. Um, and I really did enjoy what it was, the, the, the craftsmanship and the artistmanship of um, of cooking. And, you know, I just took that to, you know, the culinary world and mixed it in, you know, mixed in fashion with it and, you know, a lot of my athletes, they, they they drew to me because of that, not only because of the cooking, but they can relate to me. I can be in the house. We can talk about sports, We, you know, and um, I'm fine. I'm finally trained in almost every aspect of cooking. So it's not like they got to worry about going get a certain chef for nutrition or a certain chef for vegan. You know, I, I pretty much do it all. So it was easy for me to have so many different backgrounds of clients that I could um uh, help and you know service yeah and it's 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 such a great point too because i think exactly what you're saying is is parents are pushing their kids to be so specialized in a sport early yeah. on but everything you hear from professional athletes is oh i played all these sports growing up until i got to you know my junior year or senior year of high school yeah. and don't do that and don't do that and i think it can even be extended to what you're saying is don't just focus in on playing a bunch of sports, do other things, you know, like find other hobbies, find other passions, because it's, it's going to end quicker than you think it is. And it's a lot of times it's not going to work out. <laughs> it's funny because now, like, you know, it's, I think we've pushed it on the world so much. Like now when just say you see a, a Damian Lillard to be example, who's a phenomenal rapper, but people just look at him like stick to basketball. And I'm just like, what do you think that, People don't do anything else outside of, you know, dribble basketball. Like so many of it, it's so many things that as kids, like, you know, football was just something that I was good at, but I also was great at this. And I also was great at that. But of course, football was the thing that you got to see every day. So that was the thing that people focused on the most. But I'm sure a lot of kids grew up rapping in their bathroom on the daily and wanted to be rappers in the midst of being good at football. Like, you know, just having an extra talent and, painting or um, anything, like pretty much anything, putting things together, cooking. I think people, like, being a football player didn't mean I didn't have to go home and cook. Like, you know, so I still had to go home and cook and perfect that. So, you know, when we get attached to the to, to the stigma of, oh, you play the sport, how do you know how to do this? And I'm just like, uh, after practice, I had to come home and do something else, you know? <laughs> like, you know, it, and... and, and now, um, I think a rapper, ESTG, 
which was one of the top football players coming out the country um, when he coming out of Louisville when he came out, and now he's a big time rapper. And people were like, how? And I'm just like, easy. Like that wasn't football. wasn't just the only thing he was good at. And now, like, but you see a lot of guys now. Back in the day, people played football until they were forty, or, or at least tried. But look at people like Todd Gurley. Like Todd's like, I got enough money. I'm going to go live a normal life now. Like it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Like it, it's a lot. Football is a lot. Uh, sports, sports in general. Uh, you just imagine you, you're just imagine you're from Miami and you buy a and you go to college in LA and you buy a house in LA, but you get drafted by Pittsburgh and you sign for 50 mil and you buy a house in LA It's the off season and off season's over December. Just say, just say you go to the playoffs, you make it to January off season's over. You buy a $5 million house in LA and in March, you have to leave your $5 million house to go back to camp and, you, and then you're you're newborn and camp starts in March and pretty much from March to December. I mean, you're getting probably two weeks here and there to go back to your home. But, you know, it's a lot of things where some of these athletes now, you know, they want to enjoy their life outside of football. And, you know, when you're getting paid that much that much money, like you're not going to have time to, like, enjoy your life the way you want to. Yeah, for sure. I think I mean, you touch on a really interesting point there. And I kind of want to, the idea that you can't be talented at more than one thing. I think it's hard for a lot of people to relate to because I think for the average person, being really, really good at one thing is already almost inconceivable. So to imagine being super talented at two things becomes yeah. kind of difficult to wrap their heads around. And so, yeah, I think there is skepticism when someone is an athlete, but trying to do something else of, oh, you're just trying to use your platform to do exactly. something else, but you're exactly. Have have you encountered any real skepticism then in terms of your in terms of as a chef in terms of people hearing about your background and then thinking well, you're probably not that good then? Early on in my career, I heard it often. Early on in my career, I heard people, um, "Oh, you got this client." Mind you, not one client that I actually cooked for, I played with, or you know, like knew while I was actually playing. Um, and I really, and the thing is, it was. Early on in my career, it was the starting point to get me out there doing interviews and things like that, mentioning that I was an ex-football player. But um, probably within like the past four years, I hate when people mention it. Like, I, like you can't even go on my page. Uh -oh. no, no, like you can't even go on my page and find out um, that I was like I played football. Like every once in a blue moon, I post a throwback, and people are like, "Wow, I didn't know." And it's just I could I I hated it for a minute. Like now nah, I'm really one of the best chefs in the world, and I really went to the number one culinary school in the world. Like, don't just categorize me as an athlete that had a platform to, you know, pick up athletes. And I knew I knew none of my clients, you know, through football, and a lot of my, you know, all the clients that I've got like has been through just word of mouth on how good of a chef I am. Like I started my Instagram over and everything in twenty in 2013 just to start a whole new Instagram, just a culinary Instagram. And I mean, back then I, my page wasn't even verified. Like I got verified from being a chef. So 
It wasn't like um, football. I was verified from football, and I just kept. I, I took all my momentum. Like I started from rock bottom in the culinary world, like the bottom of the bottom. I guess then maybe as the final somewhat football related question. No, that's but, right. I mean, look, know. I can talk about. You know, <laughs> it's just. It's just. It's just a. Um, you don't want to be known as a as a football player who cooks. You want to be yeah, a chef. So so. A great example that guy tells people is um, he was a chef that could play football good. Like that, yeah. that, that that's pretty much how that's yeah. pretty yeah. much how guy explains it to people when they ask about it. He's like he, he was just a chef that could play football in his spare time. <laughs> yeah, but then speaking, I guess of that transition, you know, like I think for a lot of outsiders too within the cooking world, you see someone like say Gordon Ramsay who's kind of the the image people have of a chef who just is hard on people. They yep. run their they run their kitchen kind of like a military operation, you know, shouting at people and, and keeping everyone in line. And in some ways I guess maybe there's some parallels to certain styles within football coaches and things. Yeah. Do you almost feel like that fo- football background helped you in terms of maybe oh for that sure. world? For sure. For, for sure. Oh, I'm going to Ramsey. <laughs> I am him. Like my kitchen is ran like a military. Like like I mean, I went to I, this this day and age of cooking is a lot different because you know the internet exists. So you know, um, back I went to culinary school in Sicily. A chef would throw a frying pan at you if shit is not right. <laughs> you know, like so it's a lot different now than you know. You can't yell too much. HR a this and that, but you know, I grew up in that in that. But don't get it wrong, Gordon Ramsay's an amazing guy, amazing family guy, a, a great person. Um, it's just he has a show that, you know, that's what sells. And um, but most of the time the, those are the type of chefs like just seeing your coach. Football comes from structure. You know, you go from six AM um you, you have to get treatment and then seven o'clock is meetings team meetings and then 745 is individual meetings and then it's getting ready for practice and then 12 is practice you know so starting my own company I started out building it off structure and football I mean structure helps with anything that you do in life like you know if you have structure to it it works um Cam preparing me for this interview like with you know keynotes are things that Everything should have, you know, it's it's structure to it, and then be, you know, playing sports, dealing with some coaches that have immaculate structure. My college coach had so much structure; it helped me go to the next level. And I think when you take some of your sports background into whatever it is that you're doing now, like it's in the kitchen, I have things, you know, in certain places, stations for people, almost like you would break up for teams. Def- uh, linebackers here, corners here, running backs there. Like, that's how I break it up. Like, pastry over here, saute over here, uh, grill over here. It's the, it's the same way. So, football definitely, well, you know, um, professional sports overall for anybody, you know, they help you with that structure of, you know, guidance and um, knowing how to align things and, and structure things in the kitchen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. And, and I guess going from – from that on to you being a personal chef for athletes, I think it's really interesting because when you hear personal chef, a lot of times it's just, you know, rich or celebrities or famous people who just want someone to come in and cook, 
you know, top end amazing meals. But with an athlete, you have to keep so much more in mind as to, you know, what their nutritional requirements are. Are they competing this day, that day? So how did you shape that? I mean, what was kind of your attitude going into it? Were, were you more just focused in on giving them great tasting food or did you want to give them the best food to make them the best athlete? Um, so again, all that was like trial and error. Like when I started with Santana, it was just an opportunity to get a chance to cook whatever it was that he wanted me to cook. Um, and building myself up as a private chef, you know, um, learning things. And then I had other chef mentors that, that cooked for, um, um, chef Richard, who was Carmelo's chef at the time. He's D Wade's chef right now. D, um, I, he was somebody that I had to call often and ask, you know, what are questions do I, that I learned? So with like Santana, Santana was a, a lean meat guy. So he ate bison a lot. Um, didn't eat fried foods. Um, but then you had some clients like Deshaun who ate everything. Like it was, there was no like, um, it was no diet restriction. And then you had people like Trent who had to stay a certain size. And then you had Jameer Nelson who was on keto diet. Um, I had a, a couple of other clients who were vegetarians. So everybody, once I, uh, it got to the point where when I had new clients, I would um, do questionnaires for like a week. We would just pretty much get to know each other. Things that they eat, things that they don't eat, things that they're interested in. What are what like? What's the the main goal? Are we are we just eating to eat? Are we eating to lose weight? Are we eating to lean up? Um, is a specific uh, area of the body that we want to work on? Um, and I think that that part helped me. But I really walked away from athletes when I found that when I found that it was um, jeopardizing um, the growth of my culinary. Um, opportunity and goals that I had. I like, you know, I think two or three years in after I started cooking for a couple big names and started to see how good I was as a chef, um, I started to take it a lot more serious. So I started to take smaller classes like butchering class. Um, I finished up on baking and pastry just to have it in my resume. Not to say I'll ever do it, but you know, just to have it because people always would ask like, like you really feel like you could be one of the best chefs in the world. And I was just like, without a doubt, like, you know, I've always felt that way. And I just, you know, you just needed the slightest opportunity, you know, to be able to present it to people. And um, just with my athletes, literally just over and over cooking the same things, I started to feel like I was meal prepping and it started to deter my, you know, it started to stress me out. I started to lose interest in, going to somebody's house, just cooking, putting it in the container. And, you know, and the money was beyond amazing. I wouldn't, six athletes a week, $2,500 an athlete, you know, it, it was, it was beyond good money, but I found myself being bored. And then I found myself going into rooms with real chefs, having conversations of culinary and really not being able to stand out because at the end of the day, a Gordon Ramsay doesn't care if you cook for Deshaun Jackson, like, you know, like, that doesn't mean like, you know, I'm cooking for the best taste buds or something. So um, I kind of pushed away from it, you know, just to start to do events. So I started to do more events and uh, eventually got a food truck. And when I got the food truck and I seen the success behind my food truck, that was when I really was just like, <laughs> like I really got to step my game up and go into another direction. That's when I started to do the bigger events. Um, I got a tour right now called Everybody Eats with another amazing chef, um, Matt. Um, 
and we're going city to city just to introduce like a fine dining aspect, but with a cool vibe and, and just, you know, somewhere where people can, you never know you're in a room with, you could be in a room with Navarro Bowman or Kevin Durant and you just not knowing. So those type of vibes, you know, trying to create, able to create successful restaurants and now TV and, you know, just tying all those things in, just showing people like sports are amazing, but you could be just as amazing, you know, doing whatever it is that you love to do outside of sports. And I think people think that you only get rich off of sports or be successful off of sports or entertainment when I'm telling you so much more that you could use your platform, especially this social media platform is I think podcasts and social media have been the biggest thing to the the past 10 years of our, of our world, because now you can see so many people and touch so many people um, without having to go on, like watch them on physical TV now. No, for sure. And I mean, we can relate to it, right? Like yeah. 10, yeah. 10, 15 <laughs> years ago for us without any attachment to a, a media company or a network, we, we, we couldn't have done this. It was impossible. Yeah. Like so, it's it so impossible. You're in a whole other country right now. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that yeah, no, we're crossing multiple time zones. I have a little bit of a question just about you're talking about wanting to be respected by chefs, by other people within your, you know, your your industry. How does that then play in? You you kind of talking maybe being in a, a private chef doesn't get the same level of respect. How does it kind of factor in the sort of TV personality chef? Are you really only proving yourself with two other chefs? Kind of in a restaurant with what you put out there is that where you're really getting judged in terms of how good you are how talented oh. you are how good the food is well tv personality chefs um of course it has a lot to do with popularity of course um but a lot of these chefs are um trained and a lot of these chefs are uh, do have the background do have the like my favorite chef is one of my favorite chefs is uh, alice gornicelli who is a phenomenal chef with endless achievements. And um, of course, Guy being Guy being someone I'm so close to uh, and a mentor for me. Um, it, um, chefs just, for me, being a private chef won't do it for me to say, like, you know, I'm one of the best. Because not everybody can tell, how do people know that? Like when you're only cooking for a minimum of, you know, certain people where restaurants in the world can really make or break a chef. You could open a restaurant and it flop and it really take your TV personality or your or whatever personality it is that you have and really tarnish it. Or it could or you could open a restaurant and really put a concept together and people really look at it like this guy's a genius. Not only can he do it as a private chef, but he can also do it in a restaurant form. And Having personalities is how you get to having personalities how you get to TV. So if you can put those things together as a private chef and open restaurants that's successful that get noticed by Food and Wine magazine and um, and Food Network, if you can do things like that, the the, the network will notice you or TV will notice you. Or, you know, people start to notice who you are, and then finishing it off with a great personality. You know, people people love great personality. That's what makes TV. So, um, all chefs on TV are amazing. You know, but I feel like there's a lot of amazing chefs out here that own restaurants that just aren't. Every chef is not a, a people person. Or my mentor is a chef that hates TV. He doesn't care to ever 
uh, go on TV, but he's one of the best chefs I know. And um, sometimes it really just goes off of, like you said, some TV, like TV personalities are a lot of have to do with, you know, just who you are. So, so I guess kind of going off of that, you, you know, you definitely have that, I call it a sports mentality, but I guess it's just a, a winning mentality that you want to be the best. You want to be the best. And sure. you, you know, you said that you want to get into, you know, having your own restaurant and being the best. So it, what to you then defines being the best owning your restaurant? Is it, is it, you know, cause you hear a lot of times that people don't like to read reviews and, and they don't want to look at, you know, what other people are saying, but I guess I live in, if, I live in the reviews. Okay. I live in like, I live and die in the reviews. Like, <laughs> and um, that's another reason why, like, you know, I, I felt like even opening my own restaurant now, like, you know, I've had, um, I, I've taken every opportunity that I've had opened the previous restaurants with people as basically like a paid internship to, to now having my own opportunity. And I think this, it has a lot to do with, again, giving the experience, uh, food is more than cooking is more than just, you know, going in and eating at a good restaurant. You know, it's, it's a lot about customer service and giving people a dining experience that they haven't had before. And that's the biggest thing for me. <clears throat> Where changing like I've I have arguments every day with um some of my some of my managers and you know we we talk good good arguments, you know, just on who who defines what a Michelin star restaurant is, you know, outside of good food. If you if you come with all the aesthetics and you know the proper uh um structure of how you build a restaurant, who determines what type of music you listen to when you're at the, um, when you're eating, who said I couldn't listen to a little bit of Mary J. Blige eating a miso glazed octopus or, you know, tuna tartare, like that, that, you know, that's a, you know, that doesn't mean like, oh, this is not an upscale restaurant. You know, I want people to be comfortable in, in, in a space of coming to eat, you know, um, it, it's just so many things that being an athlete helps you, put together like you know athletes like to be the best and when like Tom Brady is going to be the best he's not going to settle for you know being okay at um, one part he's he knows he's not never going to have a rushing title <laughs> as a quarterback but he also knows he's going to have every passing um, um, award and every uh, touchdown award you know multiple receivers you know and it, that part of it is where with me in culinary I want when you come into the restaurant I want you to leave happy. I want you to, you want your belly to be full. I want you to have conversations about not only the food being impeccable, but the drinks being phenomenal and the experience, the ambiance, um, and somewhere where you've had a dining experience more than just eating good food. And I think with me, um, this course in my life right now is to just introduce, um, a mixture, a mixture of it all. I mean, I think the greatest way I explained it to people was, in my opinion, just, you know, just my humble opinion, I'm like one of the only chefs that could tackle, I don't know a, a, a black chef that could tackle um, the French or I would say um, the, uh, uh, the other side of culinary where I don't know a white chef that can conquer the 
culture, Southern side of food, the same way where I feel like I'm in, like, I'm phenomenal in both ends. Like, you know, I've, I'm classically French trained and I grew up, I went to college in the South. My parents are West African, you know, I grew up, you know, eating Southern food. So to be able to mix those two together and be great at both of them, it's not, and, and then have a sense of style and um, just uh, no, no good things. I've been to a million restaurants and a, a lot of Michelin star restaurants and in, uh, in different countries and seeing aesthetics and, you know, how people come in, how people are greeted, champagne at the door, uh, palate cleansers, uh, uh, hand towel service, but still just being able to have my 75 year old grandmother come and my 25 year old daughter come and they both my daughter's not 25 but just give an example of <laughs> uh, you know the two realms of people you know but i also like people wouldn't never look at me and think that one of my main clients mom is hillary clinton was hillary clinton's campaign manager and i was the chef cooking at all hillary clinton's campaigns like you know stuff like that people wouldn't look at me and think it but you know, that's the part of the whole journey and the fun and, you know, being able to, being able to, you know, touch every palate. It's, I, I close my eyes when I cook. I'm not feeding a color or a person. I'm more feeling the palate. And that's the, the funnest part of it. Like, if I could just close my eyes and really just create art on the plate, everybody don't care who's eating it. You know, it's just about, you know, just giving people a great time. No, that makes a lot of sense. And maybe that's, you know, that's probably a big advantage you have in that unusual path to where you've ended up is, yeah. is kind of not having those same expectations or, or kind of, you know, stereotypes surrounding people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, getting, you opened 13 with, with James Harden. You can kind of see, you know, you touched on having that mixture of classical or Southern cooking and, and West African. You could kind of see all of those influences when you look yes. at that menu. How heavily involved is James Harden in the in the kind of day to day running of the restaurant, or is that very much he's there as a you know financial backer, but you're kind of overseeing everything that's happening? Nah, James focuses on basketball. You know, James is, is um, thirteen. You know, it's James thirteen. That's his it's thirteen by James Harden. You know, James is a, another person that has so many great things about him, who loves so many great things. Everybody know, you know, James. He loves to entertain. He loves to have fun. He loves to make sure people are good. So he wanted a hookah lounge. And, you know, he, he James has been to the finest of the finest restaurants, you know, so he wanted a fine dining restaurant. And, you know, James, he likes to have a good time, So he wanted, but he wanted to separate all those things. So he has a club in the basement, you know, so you could just come into the room and actually have a piece of everything. You can go from eating a great meal, take down your tie, go into the hookah lounge, have a great hookah, have a hookah, and then button it all the way down and go downstairs and have a great night, you know. But James, like, uh, James, he, he, he knew in the department of um, culinary, I was the James Harden of, you know, the culinary world. So it wasn't something where he, he trusted me. James didn't, James probably couldn't tell you five things on the menu, you know, and that's the great part about it. That, that's why um, with where I was in my career, I had already opened a restaurant on my own. Um, I had already opened a restaurant on my own. So I didn't, um, I, I didn't have to open a restaurant with another athlete. I didn't have to open a restaurant with anyone. So, you know, just 
opening a restaurant with James, it, was, it had to be the right, it had to be the right piece. You know, it had to be something, somebody that gave me free will to do whatever it was that I want. And it was, it was a new opportunity. I was able to come to Houston, something that I had not, I had not lived in. I had been to Houston a couple of times because Trent lives in Houston, but, you know, just going from opening a restaurant in Miami to now seeing if I could go to another food town and really prove myself once again as a chef and, you know, coming out here and having a four-star restaurant right now on, on, on Yelp and Google, you know, that's one of those things where, you know, every day we've been getting better as a restaurant as a whole. So, you know, I love the partnership that we have. Um, it's a great, it was a, it was a phenomenal opportunity for me to, again, you know, advance my career being with somebody, you know, I lived in the bubble with James when, um, when we was creating this concept, when when they had to play um, over in Orlando, I lived in a bubble with him cooking for a day to day. So creating this concept was a concept where he gave me free will. He was like, you know, bro, I know you do, you do this and you do this the best and you can touch on. So I came to Houston. I went to different restaurants in Houston. I picked up the the, um, the, the Houston culture, you know, the Southern culture, and I tried to tie it a little bit Caribbean and then a little bit of um, adding a couple pastas to, you know, give it a little Italian um, backgrounding. But, I mean, it's been an amazing process, man. And, you know, we plan on opening many more on top of, you know, opening many more honcho houses. That's that's awesome. And and I just you mentioning that you were living in a bubble, I saw Eddie's eyes kind of open because we used to have a lot of discussions <laughs> about of just how yeah. unique of a situation that. So we'll have to save that for another time because I'm sure and Ed, I'm sure Eddie would have a thousand questions. <laughs> that could be a whole nother that could be a whole nother podcast. That's, that's when COVID was thick. So that's when that's when you're getting a, a, a needle shoved up your nose three times a day just because I didn't live on the bubble with him. So you know, he, he got me a house off the bubble. So um, having, because I was one of the few, like LeBron chef, I think Steph, a lot of chefs lived in in Disney with them, but I, I couldn't do the living in there. So I think me, like LeBron chef, Steph chef, and like a couple other people, like were able to have their chefs like come on every day, but no physical contact. But it was like a process, like even just dropping it off to the guards, you literally had to take a COVID test every meal you dropped off. So like those two and a half months was hectic. It was hectic. I was so sick of COVID at that time. I was just like, damn. That's crazy. <laughs> no, I think we could do like a 12-part yeah. series just on, <laughs> on bubble life. For well, uh... sure. But so I, <laughs> I, I kind of, I, you know, I, I think – it'd be awesome to talk a little about like the competition cooking. And, you know, before this podcast, I kind of went in trying to see, you know, what made you interested in it. But now after 30 minutes, I think it's pretty clear, you know, what draws you to the competition cooking oh, is that sure. you, you want to be the best and, and you think you're the best and, sure. and that's a great platform to do that. So how, how did that kind of start, I guess, is the, is the first question is, you know, you started on guys groceries game, which is a competition cooking show. For those who have yeah. never seen it, but you know, is that something that you start reaching out to people, or that people start to see you and and ask if you want to be, participate? How how did it come about to start? Um, well, I really um, the internet's a, internet's a, my biggest free platform. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's free advertisement. You know, you really don't pay. You really don't pay to to advertise yourself on the internet. And after a while, I think after I cooked for so many people. At one point, you know, I think 
Um, I just had a casting director reach out to me from God's Grocery Games. It's crazy because last night I just happened to randomly turn the TV on last night. And the first episode that I ever was on on God's Grocery Games just happened to be on a rerun of Food Network. And, and I just watched my growth from there. But and I was just a, it was just jumping on the show and um, going from that show to winning that show to um, God's Grocery Games have like a level of competition that they put you on. They'll start you out. So I think they started me out like, you know, just first time going against like a lot of local chefs from their area, from different areas. And, you know, winning that and guys seeing that. Um, he always used to tell us like, you know, just being on the show is already a win for you as a chef. You know, it's m multiple people get to see you that you would normally not see. And then um, uh, I really think after a while he's seen technique and, you know, personality, you know, personality is, you could be the greatest chef in the world with no personality. You know, it wouldn't be, you, you wouldn't sell TV. So, people wouldn't want to watch you. So I think, you know, just coming back over and over, being a personality that people love to see and ratings going extra high when I would come on to certain shows, I think it was something that um, it brought, it kept bringing me back. And Guy being one of the main faces of Food Network, you know, one of the highest paid chefs um, in the world right now and having a three-year, $85 million contract. You know, not too many people could say that, you know, and people will ask me, like, why do I strive so hard to continue in my culinary world? Um, I play professional sports where, you know, you got mega contracts like that. And before, like, to the normal eye, you wouldn't hear someone get someone doing food being able to sign a three-year, $85 million contract, you know, so... Um, that part was something where once I seen Guy do it, I was just like, I know it's possible. And I know it's possible to, for a while, I just felt like I knew I was the best black chef in the country. Like, I, I just knew it. It's, I felt that way for the past five, six years now. Like, I feel like it's a lot of great chefs out here, but just as far as black chefs, I felt like known. And I felt like, I mean, I don't care who hears this and who feels some type of way about it, but that's how I feel about it. And I just felt like I wasn't able to actually, at, throughout that whole time, I never showed what I was actually classically trained to do, which was French cuisine. And I felt like um, I wanted to be on TLC for a while now. And, you know, just I didn't have a Michelin star restaurant. Um, um, I had been nominated for a James Beard, but like don't have a James Beard award had not owned a restaurant on my own yet. So a lot of the chefs on the show was just like, why the hell is he here? You know, but God being my advocate to get me onto the show, I came onto the show as a 29th seed chef. And But God knowing my background and knowing who I was as a chef and knowing that some people just really need that opportunity. And I was one of those people that I really just needed my foot in the door, which was Amazing for me because you got to think those are chefs that I looked up to, that I seen, that I respected. Alice Gornicelli, Jet Teela, uh, Christian Petroni, the guy I faced in the first round of TLC was my judge two times on God's Grocery Game. You know, so just being able to be in a room with those type of chefs, I knew that if I did what I was supposed to do as a chef, um, it would now put me in a position to really show the rest of the world because a lot of people watch guys grocery games, but everybody watched TOC, you know, TOC is like the American idol for chefs. So, you know, just being able to go every, every week, the, the, the more you win, the bigger this America hears about your story and the, the more they know about you because the less chefs, the more time they have to focus on the individual. So, um, 
just being on being on TLC was the by far the greatest um, opportunity as a chef so far in my culinary career. Just being able to go there, just being able to finish in the final four and being points away from actually, you know, making it to the finals. Um, I lost to a phenomenal, amazing um, woman, Tiffany Faison, who who ended up winning the whole thing. Who um, a great chef, I, you know, I respect her work, and you know, I'll be back this year. That's that's the greatest thing about it. Um, um, I'm I'm out for blood. Um, you know, I want to win that. That's a hundred thousand dollars and a chance to say you're the best chef in the United States. So it's a pretty dope opportunity, and you know, I look forward to going. Since I've been back, I've like it was more things that you learn. It's just like going to the Super Bowl and losing and you working on things that you need to do to get better to prepare yourself because you want to prepare like you'll be there again. So, you know, just touching up on different things, like learning more regions of food, more Mediterranean, uh, more Asian, you know, more Italian, more, more Middle Eastern, just learning those, adding that to my, you know, repertoire of not, I don't necessarily have to cook it every day, but knowing it and knowing how to just do it on the fly, which was something that, competition shows are everything's on the fly well you know like 40 minutes is 40 minutes and you got to get it done and um i'm just ready i'm excited to you know to open this restaurant i'm excited to uh continue to give the people in houston uh impeccable food and you know look forward to tv seeing a whole lot more more of me i guess that's a it's an official warning to all of your yeah. uh, competition out there. Sure. You're in. You're in for blood this year. So I, sure. I guess you know for we sure. don't we don't want to keep you for too long, and yeah. we know we're kind of you know the time. But maybe a couple, if we could finish with a couple quick fire sure. questions, I'm, I'm maybe cool. just to just to wrap things up. So I've got a question for you. If you had to cook and eat one dish remainder of your life, what are you choosing? Wait, wait. I want to oh. ask you though before he answers. Is it, does he have to cook? And then eat the dish he cooks, or is he cooking a dish to give to someone and eating whatever he wants to eat from somewhere else? Cooking, cooking and eating. So okay. both taking pleasure out of the cooking process and the consuming. Um, I'm a I am a obsessed ramen eater. Yeah, so I did not expect that. I have to say, yeah, I'm a, <laughs> I, I, I love ramen. I love pasta. Um, if I could eat pasta and ramen every day, I would. I'll just mix it up different ways. Um, I have a ox. I have a sixteen layer oxtail lasagna on my menu, and oh my you know God. that's just a mixture of, of course, Caribbean and Italian. You know, so just like pasta, I could eat pasta every single day if I if I had a choice. You can make pasta four hundred different ways. So, um, pasta, yeah, and ramen, like you know, chicken ramen. Uh, vegan ramen, uh, curry ramen. It's 12,000 different ways you can ramen something. So if I had a choice right now, pasta and ramen, if that's the only thing I could cook and, and, and eat for the rest of my life, yeah, I would be perfectly like not even have an issue with that. That's awesome. Fair so I, I guess, you know, you said guy guy's quote is, you know, just being on a show is a win. And I, I, I agree. I'm sure that's true, but I'm sure you, are also a very competitive person and maybe guys groceries game is a more little laid back fun. You, you yeah. know, you, you want to win, but you also want to have fun. But when you get to those tournament now, of champions, how, yeah, how, yeah, how competitive is so like, for instance, uh, you know, when you 
when you made it to the semis and and you know and lost, were you thinking about that for you know weeks after? Were you kind of why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? You know, or I I, ha- yeah. I have to get back. You know, how, how what's the level of competition? Because from someone who's a professional athlete, right, you know that feeling of you know losing a big game or not having that final run. What what was the feeling like stepping back from tournament of champions? Um, I felt like so. I mean, technically, we filmed tournaments of champs in December, um, but it aired in March. I knew the exact feeling that Joe Burrows felt when he lost the Super Bowl. Like people were happy for him that he made it, being his second year, but he was upset with himself because he knew who he is. Like people were beyond thrilled. Like. You know, after I made it out the first round, people were just like, oh, well, you already won, you know, just by making it out the first round. And then the second round came and it was like, whoa, like, oh, like you really won one now. And um, for me, I was just like, I really if I go home right now, it's still going to be like impossible to explain to people that I lost because the people in my inner circle that know me know that I don't care if they would have sat Bobby Flay in front of me, you know, like I'm. I don't care. Like, I, I want to be the best. I never want to lose. Um, but I do know that it was one of the greatest learning experiences for me. Like, you know, just being the money. Those chefs are chefs that Tiffany Faison has been in the culinary world for 20 years. Um, she has multiple Michelin star restaurants and multiple um, James Beard Award when, like, you know, she knows culinary. So it's like being a – I'm – 10 years in, but I'm still a rookie in the culinary world. You know, this is my first official restaurant I'm getting ready to own on my own. You know, so like the, just the gift of being that good to make it that far now is just watching their work ethics. Like, so now seeing, being in a room with these chefs and seeing how hard they were in the books every day after each competition and trying to like, and you know, me walking into it, it was just like, oh yeah, we're going to go in here and cook. Like, they sent a study guide, but okay, I'll check it out. And getting there and seeing like Amanda Furtag, like really like all night in her book, looking at how many different cultures of food we could possibly have on a randomizer, how many different type of proteins we could have on a randomizer. I mean, like looking at that, it was just like, oh, this is really serious. <laughs> like this is not this is not like one of these like okay, you're just good. Now nah, this is really like people's are. Uh, like these are millionaire chefs and they're after it like blood. And I mean, yeah. you see a lot of, you see a lot of tears. You see a lot of like people emotionally hurt over this. So walking out of the room, I was, of course I was beyond mad that I lost, but sitting back and understanding that nobody that looked like me from my, from my, from where I grew up from ever experienced something like this was a win. Like, so not always a loss in an actual moment is always a loss. You know, sometimes like, you know, I got an opportunity where a lot of black kids that look like me from the inner city will never get a chance to look at, all we grew up looking at was drug dealers, athletes, and rappers. So, you know, to be able to be a face for, you know, my culture and my community, to see someone like me be able to stand on the highest level of culinary and and, and be, and, and, and like, not only be there, but actually, you know, give a great performance. Um, it was something that only I could, I can only be proud of that moment and continue to build on that moment and continue to take it to another level of 
where, you know, I just want to wake up one day and, you know, younger kids. When I was growing up, I didn't look up to chefs. There wasn't no chef that I looked up to, you know, like, nah, I looked up to athletes. I, I wanted to be Ricky Williams growing up, you know. I, I, you know, I, I listened to rap music. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, man, you see this chef right there? Man, I want to be like him when I grow up. So, you know, for them to be able to see me be who I am in my own skin and, and not having to be someone else and still be on that level next to, you know, people that I've looked up to my whole life in the culinary world and them see see that, you know, that was the biggest win for me, you know, you know, and, you know, going back and being able to come home and regroup and study and open new things and open new ventures and, you know, start this new path and opening a new restaurant by myself. This has been a dream in itself, you know, just doing it on my own by myself for the first time. So um, out, of all, out of that whole tournament of the champs, I, I I lost by losing in the semifinals, but I, I I really won by helping you know a lot of people you know see you know who Chef Tobias really is and you know getting to see that I have a whole nother side of me that on a day to day cooking for athletes really didn't get a chance for me to show now and and now like you know with having my own platform I can now show that. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, and I mean we speak about something like that quite a bit and. With like the England women having just won the Euros, for example, we yeah. spoke about how important it is for people to see someone who looks like them or they can relate to more closely, sure. how much, how inspirational that can be, you know, and make them feel like that's a possibility to do something because it's not just a different type of person doing it. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you, you don't want to feel like you don't like, you know, most of the time, you know, a lot of people like, um, I think like, you know, growing up. If I did watch the Food Network, just to be honest, like I would always see white people on the, on the Food Network. So it would like, I would always be like, why would I, like, like I could never be on here. Like, you know, and that's just a thought, like, where if that's all you see, like, and that's all you know, like, so, you know, just having the opportunity where, you know, I had so many DMs and then, you know, just um, on the show, I actually had an anxiety attack on the show, you know, just being another face of, uh, you know, mental health, you know, being able to show, um, men in general have a hard time of, you know, expressing like you're, you're not the tough guy. If you cry on TV or, if, you know, you have a mental breakdown, you know, a lot of men keep things bottled in because we don't want to, we don't want the world to see us looking like we're not at our, at our toughest point. And I think TV helped with that too. You know, just knowing a lot of people look at me as a bad boy on, on, on camera behind the lens, you know, not really knowing me, not having a conversation with me. I give that off, which I'm fine with giving that off. Like, because I don't want people that don't know me to know me. Like, if you want, like, I don't want a judger to know who I am. If you're going to judge someone by the way they look or, you know, their appearance, then I don't want, I don't want to take the time for you. I don't want to have to explain, you know, I'm this person for you to understand or to see that. Like, to, I, I told, I had, I just did an interview with Revolt and told him that um, as we was going through the interview, she ended up finding out I had five degrees and she was flat, she was floored and <laughs> like, why? Like, I got five degrees. Like, I, what is what is five degrees supposed to look like? Is what I tell people all the time. Like, what is a chef supposed to look like? Like, what am I supposed to wear a top hat all the time or, or, or like? You know, I I, I want to look like who I am. I want to be in my own skin, and I want people to know like 
if you're vulnerable in situations, it's okay to talk about it. Like nothing's gonna, nobody's gonna look at you differently. But keeping it in can really, can really like uh, stir people to to wrong directions and to doing things that you know you regret in the long run. Like you know, just boggling up and fighting with yourself and battling yourself on certain things. And for me, like that's never been me. Like something's bothering me. Um, I'm going to let everybody know, like, you know, it's no problem. With, I don't nobody look at me no different. Like, oh, man, Tobias is soft because he was crying on TV. I don't think you want to run up on Tobias, but, <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't care if people know those type of things, man. You know, so TV has been a, a great platform and to, you know, just show the world, like, anybody in this world can be anything they want to be and as long as, that sports background that I have has given me that 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 push to if I want to be the best chef, I'm gonna be the best chef. If I want to be the best trash guy, like I'm going to be the best trash guy, and nobody's gonna be better than me at it. I feel like if everybody carries themselves in that aspect of life, then I'm like I'm creating a podcast, and um, it's called Knife Talk, and. Um, it's pretty much over food. I have a chef's table. I have a full seat chef's table in my restaurant, and you know, I've, I, all I do is watch podcasts. So just knowing, you know, I could have a podcast where I can invite people over, have great conversations like we're doing right now over food and drinks. You know, I felt like it would be, you know, a, a phenomenal thing. And um, so, what do I do? I, I study podcasts every day. I read podcasts, you know, um, and I just learn about, you know, how how to be good at it, like you know, and you know, it's not something that I want to like. I need to go out as the best podcast in the world, but just to give the world something else to see that, again, you don't have to be trapped into one thing that you're doing. I want to do 50 things, and if I feel like I could be great at 50 things, I feel like, you know, you should do it. People shouldn't be attached into just locking themselves into, you know, just being good at one thing. Yeah. So I, well, I, Yeah, I, no, I think that's a it's, – well, I'm just going to say, you're allowed to have the second best podcast in the world. Well, 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 I'll no. take that. I'll well, take that. As long as I got well, the best food, I'm, I'll take that. Okay. I'll take that. Okay. See, Eddie, Eddie we'll I was going to go the category. other way, Eddie. I was going to say, first off, we accept the invitation to be on the podcast and, and share well, some sure. food and drinks. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll, we'll make the trip. <laughs> but uh, so, second, I, I mean, you, you brought up when, when you had – uh, you know that that moment before you were about to compete, and and I I, th- I thought it was amazing. I thought it was great, and it was, you're right. It's such a good example to just see, you know, that this happens to everyone, you know, and and people might think it you are a everyone. super tough chef, and and you know you're a winner and you want to win, but it happens to everyone, and and not to be you know ashamed or embarrassed, and it happens. And it happened to you on live TV, and and you know, and I think it's a great thing that that happened, and. And so I, I, I thought that was amazing when, you know, when they actually showed that and aired that and that, you know, you're able to kind of discuss that openly. So I, I, I guess we're, we've pretty much bothered you enough. So I guess my last question will be, um, I'll keep it light. Guy Fieri, is he as fun off screen as he is on screen? He said, you said that he's a mentor to you. I mean, is, is he the same type of person off, off camera that he is on camera? Just fun, happy, go lucky. Well, one thing I'll say about Guy, and I, you know, I always, um, I'm really straightforward when it comes to him. Um, a lot of people wouldn't have gave me the opportunity that I have right now. I, I just, you know, just being quite frank, you know, just, just a kid from an urban neighborhood. Guy, like, trust me, Guy has worked with me so much, you know, just to teach me to be like the TV personality that I am. You know, just, you know, just holding back sometimes. You know, just, you know, being more professional. Just, you know, teaching me these. These are things that. 
again, he just signed three years, $85 million. He didn't have, he don't have to, you know, polish me up on these type of things. He don't have to, he's good where he is, but you know, just he's that way with everyone. Like people love guy and he's where he is in his career because of the, the heart and that he has outside of just cooking. Like we talk about personal life more than we talk about food at this point, because it's not like, you know, he's just worried about the food part. You know, he's more worried about, you know, your daily living and how you can make this work for your, how you can make Chef Tobias, the brand work for you and not really have to do much. Just like Guy Fieri, you have Guy Fieri, um, burger joints on carnival cruise and you have guy fury chicken spots landing all throughout you know the united states at this point and that's not even food network you know so you know just being someone that that you could have and literally talk to all the time and um doing doing filming toc you know just having the opportunity to see him in his real element with his family you know being invited to his house was something that you know, I really, that's when I really, you know, dissected that, you know, this man was like an amazing person, like someone that has not, has done nothing but try to help me in my career as a chef. And, you know, I, I, I thank God every day, for, you know, just for the opportunity to have him. Like he picks and chooses who comes on his show. I'm sure it's a million chefs that's been on the show that's won one time and never been back. And, you know, just guys grocery games alone, I've been on there seven times. So, you know, just – you know, being able to constantly come back, it was something that he's seen in me and it was something that, you know, um, I've continued to grow with. He, and he is, God wouldn't be on tournaments as a champion if it wasn't for God. So that's another way to explain, you know, who he is as a person and um, how he treats everyone around him the same way with love and, and, you know, and respect. And, you know, guys, a chef that's, beyond well-established and he respects me as a chef, you know, to the utmost and to know that, to be in a room with, you know, someone like that, who's so established, it makes it easier for you to succeed because you feel like you have someone that's on your team. That's literally beyond successful, basically handing you the blueprint without feeling like you have to work for it. Like for work for it, for like, you know, he, as long as you're doing what you're supposed to do, he tells you exactly the way to walk yourself into uh, a great situation. And that's all he's done for me. That's great. I mean, yeah, it's, it's good. And it's, you know, gr nice of him to, to kind of empower people. And at the same that's time, true. it's nice to hear, I think, someone who's so popular and revered by a general public to know that you know, he's, he's a nice person sort of away yeah, yeah. from the camera it's, as well. It's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard. But you see, the outer world probably thinks Gordon Ramsay is a prick. And Gordon Ramsay is really one of the greatest men, a phenomenal father and just a good people person. Like, But, you know, because, like, you would probably be intimidated to walk up to him on a daily because of what you see on the show. And come to, come really honestly, like, he's a phenomenal person. Yeah. No, it's always interesting to try and balance that off-screen, on-screen yeah, persona. it is. It is. It is. But I guess speaking of the persona and just before we let you go, is there any – you've mentioned, obviously, the TV shows that you're on. You've mentioned the podcast that you're about to start. Is there any – and obviously the restaurant at 13. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of plug, way people – you know, people have listened to this and enjoyed kind of learning more about you. What's the best way for them to follow you, listen to you, stay in kind of aware of you? Um, 
They they can follow me on um, Tobias Doors on Instagram or you know I'm opening the Huncho House in about two weeks. We get this um, get this thing rolling. Fine dining experience, a 46 seat upscale American fusion restaurant with a four seat chef's table. I'm one of the first chefs to bring a chef's table to my area. Uh, I got a couple TV uh, um, things that I got coming up that 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 air in the fall. Um, but for the most part, I really just appreciate you guys. I thank you guys for even taking the time out to sit with me and, and, and talk with me and um, just give me an opportunity to shine light on, you know, uh, mental health and, you know, my transition between football and culinary and just getting people to understand that uh, life is more about just being who you are as a person and just loving who you are in your own skin. And that helps you uh better yourself in whatever it is that you do in life. Because if you're better in your own skin, you can push to be better at what you're doing because you have more focus on what it is. But a lot of the times I think we fail as people and um, we just try to do a little bit more than what we're supposed to do instead of just doing what we're, what we're, we're blessed with doing. Like every day, you know, you guys wake up and this is a natural for you guys to come on here and talk to people. And, you know, just being able to share that platform with people is something that a lot of people take for granted. But, you know, people like me who understand, like, what it takes to having podcasts and putting these things together, you know, I appreciate it more. And I hope more more and more people on a daily, you know, get to appreciate people that really love what they do. And, you know, I I put my love into my food every day. And I know that um, anybody that comes to 13 or Hunter House, um, they'll be able to experience the love I put into what I do. And, you know, eventually you'll see more of me on TV and um, you'll, you'll see more of who Chef Tobias is as a person, as a, as a person outside of the kitchen, you know, and I look forward to the world seeing more of me. It's been a, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I mean, as we, there's so many little different avenues that we could have gone down. So it'd be great to have you back on in the future to talk about them in more yeah, detail. Sure. And we look forward to our, our two spots at the chef's table at some point in the future. <laughs> that's, well. a must. That, that's 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 a must. I make sure I make sure I, I check what type of what type of eating you've been doing over there in Europe, and I make sure that I have some European dishes on the menu that night. Perfect. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, and and th- thanks so much. Uh, we really appreciate it, and and you know, good luck in in all the future success. And I I can't wait to see you on TV more. Man, thank you guys, man. I appreciate you guys for having me again at Chef Tobias, man.